70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته معكم صديقتكم كندا سليماني من الجزائر أبلغ من العمر 32 عاماً Hi, my name is Kenza Sleimani. I'm tuning in from Algeria. My ties with KBS World Radio's Arabic service date back to 2012. I found out about the channel from Korea by chance as I was searching for radio stations. Ever since, I've been tuning in to the news and other programs, and since 2018, I've been serving as an official monitor. KBS World Radio's Arabic service taught me a lot and helped me have a better understanding of Korea. I would like to applaud everyone at KBS World Radio for running an outstanding and successful channel for 70 years. Congratulations on your 70th anniversary, and I wish you the very best in the future as well. Seventy years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's Wednesday the 18th of January and welcome to another edition of Korea 24. I'm your host, Kwon Jang-woo. The National Intelligence Service and the police raided one of South Korea's largest labor unions over allegations of national security law violations. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Last year, only 67 North Korean defectors came to South Korea in stark contrast to the thousands that came before the pandemic. We take a closer look at the situation for our in-depth today. And then coming up on Korea Book Club, we review a short story by the revered writer Park Young-li on the horror of life in post-war Korea. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. South Korea's top intelligence agency, the NIS and the police, raided one of the country's largest umbrella labor unions on Wednesday on suspicions that some of its members have violated the national security law. They're suspected to have engaged in illicit activities related to North Korea. For more on this and our other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Chair. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Jungle. So this raid by the National Intelligence Service and the National Police Agency uh, was met with resistance by the Korean Confederation of Trade Union members at their headquarters, leading to chaotic scenes. Uh, can you tell us what happened? Well, it started at 9.10 a.m. Wednesday morning. The standoff saw the NIS and the NPA spend nearly three hours attempting to access the headquarters of the Korean Confederation of Trade Unions, or KCTU, in central Seoul. The investigators arrived with a court-issued warrant on charges of violating the national security law. The labor group demanded the search and seizure be conducted with its lawyers present, and this is what resulted in a scuffle. The KCTU spokesperson accused investigators of forcibly ex- executing the search warrant. The NS and the police also raided the HQ of the KCTU-affiliated Korean Health and 
Medical Workers Union in southwestern Seoul, as well as the residences of former executives of other KCTU-affiliated unions in South Chala province. According to the NIS, the raids follow a years-long internal investigation into suspects alleged to have engaged in underground activities related to North Korea. The investigation reportedly includes alleged National Security Act violations by some progressive labor figures in Jeju and Changwon as well. Details are still being revealed about the allegations, so we'll continue to follow this story in the days to come. Let's turn now to the latest on President Yoon Suk-yeol's overseas trip. He's now on the second leg of his eight-day diplomacy tour. He is in Switzerland for the World Economic Forum in Davos. So what can you tell us about his itinerary? Well, the presidential plane carrying Yoon and his entourage arrive at 5.50pm Tuesday in Zurich Airport after departing from Dubai. The itinerary at luncheon meeting with CEOs from major global companies on Wednesday to present Seoul's market-based economic policy, an event aimed at promoting Korean culture and the country's bid to host the 2030 World Expo as well. The president will deliver a special address at the forum on Thursday, presenting ideas for international cooperation and solidarity in strengthening supply chains, transition to clean energy, and the construction of a digital order. He also plans to visit the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich on Thursday. He is scheduled to return on Saturday. But first, President Yoon suk yeol started his four-day visit to Switzerland with a meeting with South Korean residents there, I believe. Yeah, he, held a, he was held in a hotel in Zurich on Tuesday evening. Yoon said South Korea will strongly pursue cooperation in advanced science and technology with industry powerhouses that share universal values, such as... Switzerland. He emphasized standing in solidarity with the international community based on universal values is the path that leads to protection of the country's national interests and economic prosperity. He highlighted the two countries strengthen the foundation of bilateral economic cooperation through FTAs between South Korea and the European Free Trade Association, and that the two nations are setting new trade records every year. The president also pledged to ensure that South Korea's development and progress will bring real benefits to South Korean residents in Switzerland. Let's turn now to the allegations surrounding the main opposition Democratic Party chairman, Lee Jae-myung. He has declared that he will appear for the prosecution's questioning in the investigation into the so-called Daejangdong scandal next week. Uh, what else did he say? Well, he told reporters on Wednesday that he will appear for the questioning on Saturday, January 28th, claiming that he has to work on weekdays. The DP chief argued the Korean people are watching the politically motivated prosecution who, he said, creates and covers up crimes for their benefit. He said while he has done nothing wrong, he will appear as the prosecution demands. While denying his involvement in the land development scandal, he emphasized that history will be the judge of the prosecution's ongoing investigation against him. The South Central District Prosecutor's Office earlier this week delivered the summons for E. The DP chief is alleged to have helped an asset management company join a land development project in Sangnam while serving as Sangnam mayor. Meanwhile, the ex-Sangbangul Group chair is being grilled by prosecutors for a second a day. This is related to separate charges of corruption involving the main opposition DP chief Lee Jae-myung. On Wednesday from around 10 a.m., a probe team at the Suwon District Prosecutor's Office started questioning Kim Sung-tae. This follows a 13-hour session that ended at midnight. Kim returned to South Korea from Thailand on Tuesday after being on the run for eight months. The prosecution suspects Kim of embezzlement and breach of trust as well as illegal cash remittance to North Korea and payment of the DP chief's legal fees by proxy. 
Prosecutors are expected to seek a court warrant to arrest Kim as his detention warrant is only valid for 48 hours. Kim has denied knowing Yi that he never met the TP chief, that he never called him, and that he doesn't even know Yi's phone number. Moving on, the 55-day parliamentary investigation into the fatal Itaewon crowd crush came to a close with the committee's opposition parties adopting an outcome report without the ruling People Power Party. So can you tell us about the outcomes? Well, that's right, jang On Tuesday, the report was approved unilaterally by the main opposition Democratic Party, the Minor Justice Party and the Basic Income Party. It called for the expulsion of Interim Minister Yi Sang-min and an apology from President Yoon sang yeol The parties st- stated the minister failed to set up appropriate government headquarters in response to the tragedy and lied about having a list of bereaved families. The opposition coalition from the panel also passed a motion to file complaints against Yi and Han Sub, the chief of the presidential office's situation room, for, situation room rather, for state affairs, as well as six others for perjury and refusal to appear as witness. The ruling bloc walked out of the vote in protest, accusing the opposition of attempting to place all the blame on the UN administration. And on Wednesday, the three opposition parties held a public briefing session pledging to pursue the establishment of an independent truth-finding body to prevent a recurrence of such tragedy. Meanwhile, prosecutors raided the Seoul Metropolitan Police Agency as part of their investigation into the Itaewon crowd crush. Wednesday's morning's raid by the Seoul Western District Prosecutor's Office included the office of the chief of the Seoul Metropolitan Police Agency, Kim Gwang-ho, a special police unit probing the tragedy, previously referred Kim to the prosecution for indictment without detention on charges of professional negligence resulting in death. Kim is accused of poorly handling the tragedy, failing to take preventive measures despite anticipation of large crowds in Itaewon on Halloween weekend. It is the second raid of the Seoul Police Agency by prosecutors. The first search was conducted eight days ago. And finally, the bodies of two South Koreans who died in Sunday's plane crash in Nepal have been transported to Kathmandu. Can you tell us more? According to local sources on Tuesday, the bodies were taken to a hospital in the capital by helicopter a day after a South Korean consular representative deduced they were of a South Korean man in his 40s, identified by surname Yu, and his teenage son based on their belongings. South Korea's foreign ministry is expected to officially confirm their identities following further examination. The Yeti Airlines flight from Kathmandu carrying 68 passengers and four crew members crashed Sunday morning as it approached the Pokhara airport for landing. The cause is yet to be determined. Nepalese authorities have so far recovered 70 bodies. Actually, let's squeeze in one more story. South Korea will host the International Skating Union's Four Continents Figure Skating Championship for the first time in five years. Can you tell us more? Yeah, uh, this is happening. South Korea will host the International Skating Union, or the ISU's Four Continents Figure Skating Championships for the first time. It's been five long years. This mm. is the country that produced one of the greatest iconic performers in figure skating in Kim Yona, or Queen Yona, we like to call her. <laughs> we still see her on television, but of course, we like to see the heir parents to do their best when they're out there. And Indeed. having home ice advantage is certainly a perk there. And on, on Wednesday, ISU reported that the 2025 edition of the tournament will take place in Seoul from the February 4th to the 9th. The four continents draw athletes from four continents, Asia, America, Africa, and Oceania, with the exception of Europe, and is considered one of the four major figure skating events, along with the ISU Grand Prix Series and the World Championships. Seoul hosted the tournament back in 2020 with world-class athletes, including American figure skater Jason Brown, 
Canada's Keegan Messing and Yuzuru Hanyu of Japan featuring at the event. The Korea Skating Union has pledged all-out support for preparations, and of course, we have some uh, promising figure skaters in Korea in uh, Yu Young, who gave up for residency in Singapore, a chance to have a career there to pursue this entirely uh, new sport of figure skating by practicing in what limited facilities she had there in the <laughs> sure. sum, when it's summer all year round. And we have Kim Yerim, who is known as uh, General Kim for the way she uh, <laughs> walks out after the graceful performances like a soldier uh, leaving a battlefield. Yes, hopefully we'll see them uh, at this event in 2025. Uh, that's all for our news briefing today. Daniel, thank you for those updates. Thank you so much for having me. There were 1,047 North Korean defectors that came to South Korea in 2019. Two years later, in 2021, there were just 63. South Korea's Unification Ministry revealed last week that the number of defectors that came to South Korea last year again remained below 100 at just 67. To take a closer look at these numbers and how the situation has changed during the pandemic, we're joined on the line now by Ifang Bremer, a Seoul correspondent at NK News, who has recently written on this very issue. Mr. Bremer, hello, and thank you for talking to us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. Can you first give us more details about the latest report by the Unification Ministry on the number of defectors that came to South Korea last year and how different that is from before the pandemic? Yeah, so the Unification Ministry releases data on how many North Korean uh, defectors reach the South each quarter, so four times a year, and one time for the whole year. Uh, Mind you that this is not the total of numbers uh, of North Koreans who defect. It's just the ones actually reaching South Korea. Mm. Um, And yeah, the number is incredibly low, only 67. And as you already mentioned, before the pandemic, uh, it would be quite normal to see, um, well, anywhere between 800 to 2,000 defectors actually reaching South Korea. So 67 is a very low number indeed. Yes, I believe there was almost 3,000 back in 2009. Uh, The numbers did go down a bit in those following years. Uh, But yes, uh, the last uh, uh, record was in 2019, it was over 1,000. But then just in two years to have uh, less than 100 is quite remarkable. So why have the numbers dropped so dramatically? What has prevented North Korean defectors from coming to the South in recent years? Well, we should first note that um, since Kim Jong-un took power, defection numbers have actually been going down quite dramatically already. Mm. So Kim Jong-un has focused much more than his father on clamping down on defections. Um, but more recently, uh, since COVID-19, uh, North Korea has built dozens of new guard posts and added also extra layers of security at key border crossings and um, implemented a notorious shoot-on-site order for anyone crossing the border. So already the trend was going downwards, but uh, since COVID-19, it's been really like drastically going down. Right, so the pandemic has been used as the excuse to uh, beef up border controls. Uh, How does 
stats compare to the situation before the pandemic? Uh, what were the border controls like in the past? How easy was it essentially for defectors to defect? Well, the North Korean border, um, especially with China, has you know uh, always been the way to uh, to leave North Korea, and it has always been heavily guarded, you know, for many decades. But at certain sections of the border, there has always been. You know, a very active smuggling of both people and goods. Uh, and you could say that it at least used to be easier to cross the border. You know, you had this very active um, cross-border economy of people uh, coming to North Korea, going in and out to smuggle goods, but also active uh, network of brokers who would try to get people out of North Korea into China. Uh, so that is how it used to be. Right, but since then, as you said, a new guard posts, extra layers, and shoot on site orders—they've all made it uh, almost impossible to defect. Then, for those who have successfully defected in the last couple of years, how have they managed it uh, despite all these uh, new, new layers of uh, the border controls? Um, well, the fact is that the majority of North Koreans who are part of the Ministry of Unification statistics likely left North Korea many years ago. Um, we only know of recent defections, kind of like anecdotally, but not in large numbers. So um, successful defections, uh, it, it is very hard to say. Um, the people the, that the unification ministry now included in these statistics have likely, you know, come from third countries and uh, have come from North Korea actually quite some while ago, as we, we presume. Right. So... The latest figures, uh, the latest uh, defections that the Unification Ministry has recorded are less about those who have crossed the physical border, but more about those who are already out of the country uh, before deciding to uh, defect and come to South Korea then. Uh, I understand another interesting thing because of that has been how the demographic has changed among those uh, people who have defected. What kind of change have we seen? Now, we are seeing more North Korean men reaching South Korea. So in the last two quarters of 2022, a majority of the factors were actually male, 32, while only 16 women managed to reach South Korea in the same period. And that's remarkable because some 70% of the 34,000 or so defectors in the South are actually women. Um, but during the pandemic, the majority, majority of defectors able to reach South Korea have been male and uh, I suspect mostly overseas laborers. Um, yeah, so previously, the reason why most of the sectors currently in South Korea are female is because they escaped from border areas such as North Hamgyong and Yangang provinces, uh, where it was usually they were part of a lower social class or feeling less allegiance to the DPRK regime. And they also had more um, economic independence sometimes than men. Um, uh, but right now, uh, yeah, it's mostly defectors who were sent abroad. And those are often people who were a little bit more trusted uh, by the regime. That's why they trusted them to, you know, send them to faraway countries. So that's definitely an interesting development in terms of changing demographics. So we will also hear, uh, you know, other kinds of testimonies coming from the country, although be it very few. Right, so we're seeing a, a higher percentage of men, uh, men who were already overseas, as you said, overseas labourers who are now uh, coming to South Korea. 
What other consequences have we been seeing from having so few defections? Uh, I understand that defectors help provide insight into the regime before. Yeah, so this is a really big issue, actually. Um, the low number of defectors over the past three years has you know, really significantly reduced the level of information and also the amount of information um, of what's happening inside the DPRK. Uh, I was talking to um, a local uh, NGO, um, NKDB, um, and uh, Hannah Song, a researcher there, told me that you know, um, they struggle to collect recent evidence uh, of the human rights violations that are occurring in North, North Korea, mm. uh, but also just simply basic information of what's what's going on right right now. What are the the prices of you know basic goods like food and fuel like? It's much harder to get information uh, from the country. Right, so the regime is reclusive enough as it is, but with uh, strict border controls and so few defections, it's become even more difficult to find out about what's really happening uh, inside North Korea. Uh, If there are less defections, does that also mean that there's uh, less information going the other way into the regime as well? But you talked about how before there had been a lot of smuggling between uh, the... uh, China and North Korea on the inter-Korea, on the, on the on the northern border. In the past, North Korean people had opportunities to learn about the outside world because of this, and that was seen as a way to help uh, undermine the regime as well. Yeah, of course. I mean, it goes both ways. Um, the way info would information would trickle down into North Korea was mostly via China um, through, for example, DVDs that were smuggled in, but also simply you know mouth to mouth information. Um, but yeah, since the the increased border uh, controls, that has become very difficult. And to make matters worse, North Korea is increasingly cracking down on using foreign media as well. So in December of uh, 2020, the DPRK implemented a new law um, that worsened the punishment for consuming foreign media, including the death penalty, actually, for distributing or selling South Korean content. Um, but also think about foreign aid workers who used to visit the country quite regularly. The last foreign aid workers have you know, left in early 2021, and they would also you know, come from outside and bring their uh, yeah, <clears throat> expertise into the country. So the problem is actually much bigger than just information uh, coming out of North Korea. So as you said, the pandemic was used as the excuse to shut down the border Can you update us on the uh, pandemic situation in North Korea currently and what restrictions remain in place? We don't actually know exactly what restrictions remain in place, nor whether the situation is still serious or uh, the the, the current death toll. Uh, We know that the mask mandate has been in place for a very long time. It has not officially been lifted yet. But when it comes to social distancing, for example... We do see sometimes on TV people, you know, keeping a distance, but other times people are very much clustered together in large crowds. So it seems to be quite inconsistent. Um, so, yeah, it's very difficult to say what is the status right now of the pandemic uh, in North Korea at this point in time. Mm. OK, so finally, then, are there any signs that North Korea might ease its border restrictions, which could mean an increase in defections again for uh, those people, the oppressed people who want to uh, have that freedom to leave, uh, to have that opportunity to? 
Yeah. Um, so even as you know, its neighbor China starts to lift some of its more oppressive pandemic control measures, North Korea is actually unlikely to to follow suit because, you know, as shutting the borders really has allowed Kim Jong Un to clamp down on his you know, long-held wish of, um, you know, uh, really um, clamping down on these smuggling and defections and preventing free information flows. Uh, and strictly controlling also the, the you know, freedom of movement. Um, so actually, this is kind of what Kim has always wanted. Um, it could be a very much a you know, side effect that he did not expect, or maybe it's part of a, a bigger plan. Uh, we don't know yet, but either way, the, the sad news is that um, uh, I don't expect the borders, at least for people, uh, to open up anytime soon. And I also don't expect the North Korean regime to suddenly decrease the amount of border controls. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, actually quite a negative way to uh, end this interview. But I think that is the reality of the situation right now. Indeed. Well, we will keep uh, watch of the situation this year as well and see if there is any change. But uh, at the moment, it does look unlikely. Uh, we'll leave it there. We've been speaking to Ifan Brema from NK News. Thank you once again for your time today. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 11.07 points, or 0.47% on Wednesday, to close the day at 2,368.32. The tech-heavy Kosdaq rose, however, gaining 2.04 points, or 0.29%, to end the day at 711.75. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 1.31 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,237.41. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. Next up, it's Korea Trending, a daily segment where we take a look at some of the other news headlines that have been trending online today. And for that, we have Walter Lee joining us in the studio. Walter, hello. It's good to see you. Hi, Chang'e. It's always good to see you. OK, so what topics do you have for us today? OK, so first, we'll talk about the surge of people heading abroad for the up-and-coming Lunar New Year holidays. We'll also find out why the city of Jeju decided to roll up its sleeves to capture rabbits inhabiting the peak of a volcano cone, a volcanic cone. And finally, we'll learn about the special gift that the South Korean-born football coach Park Hang-seo received after ending his term with Vietnam. Okay, so the Lunar New Year holiday is uh, nearly upon us, and that's where we are starting today. Can you tell us more? Yes, so demand for overseas travel during Solau has soared compared to last year, as the nation will face its first Lunar New Year holiday since COVID-19 social distancing rules were eased. Now, according to the travel industry on Wednesday, a total of 15,000 people booked international tour packages with one of the country's major tour companies between this Friday and next Tuesday, while 13,000 people had booked such programs with another company. That's up 70 times and 90 times respectively compared to the previous year. Now, by region, 8 out of the 10 people have reportedly made reservations for to, uh, to travel to Southeast Asia and also Japan. Right, so a big increase in overseas travel, which uh, 
I guess it's not a surprise, really, but uh, with so many people travelling, I'm sure airports are going to be uh, very busy, right? Yeah, I'm sure they're going to be very busy. Around 480,000 passengers are expected to travel through Incheon International Airport between this Saturday and next Tuesday. That's a whopping 17-fold increase compared to the Lunar New Year holiday of last year. Now, a travel industry official said the figure is still only half of the number of passengers that the airport posted during the Lunar New Year holidays in 2020, right before the pandemic broke out. The official was quick to add, however, the demand for overseas travel is recovering at a fast pace. Right, so that's interesting. It's still only half as busy as before the pandemic. Mm. Uh, Still, has the surge caused any delays or inconveniences anywhere else? Well, there is a delay in passport issuances. Now, ahead of the Lunar New Year's request for passport issuances or renewals, which uh, had stood at less than 100,000 a week, had surged around 50%. Now, usually the process takes four or five days, but with the demand for overseas travel soaring, it's taking more than two weeks at some district offices to issue or renew a passport. Yeah, so it's perhaps uh, already too late for this upcoming (laughs) holiday. But if uh, people are looking to travel soon and they need a new passport, Mm. I think that is something to note. Uh, I imagine there are many other countries facing this issue as well. Okay, let's uh, move on to our next story. What do you have for us? Okay, so the city of Jeju announced on Tuesday's uh, plans to capture rabbits inhabiting the peak of the Sarabong Volcanic Cone, where residents take a stroll and also exercise. A city official said the decision came after the population of rabbits grew sharply, raising concerns that the numbers could disrupt the cone's ecosystem and damage the environment. Now, the official said the animals spotted at in the Sarabong Volcanic cone are European rabbits that are not native to South Korea. The official also said that they appear to have made their way to the cone after people abandoned them uh, there on several occasions. Okay, so that is, of course, very irresponsible. Yes. Uh, When were these rabbits first spotted in Sarabong? So around five years ago, but their numbers rose dramatically and Jeju estimates that their numbers reached over 40 last year. Now, the animals can produce more than five litters each year with two to five baby rabbits per litter on average. Now, Jeju City fears that the rise in the population could disrupt the ecosystem of Sarabong as it could attract stray dogs, cats and ferrets that prey on them. Also, because the long-eared animals have a tendency to (laughs) dig burrows, the city is afraid that they could accelerate the erosion of the volcanic cone, which is made up of a type of rock called scoria. Okay, so it's urgent to get a handle on this situation then. How many have been captured so far? Well, last year, some 10 rabbits were caught and there are plans to capture all the small mammals this year. The city is giving out the captured rabbits to those who want to raise them. A city official said that the furry creatures in Tarabong clearly demonstrate what happens when people irresponsibly abandon their animals. Hopefully, in the year of the rabbit, these ones will able, be able to find their new homes. Indeed, yes. Somewhere where they won't potentially destroy an ecosystem. Yes. OK, let's uh, turn to our final story now. What else has been trending today? Yeah, so Vietnam Airlines has presented a special gift to the South Korean-born football coach Park Hang-seo, who recently finished his term as head of Vietnam's national football team. Now, the airline announced on its official channel on Wednesday that it delivered to Park and his wife lifetime business class tickets for travel between South Korea and Vietnam. It is said the gift was presented as a sign of appreciation for Park's endeavours in leading the national football team to various victories. Yes, he has become a national hero of sorts there after having very successful 
period as head coach of the Southeast Asian country. Can you give us a recap of some of the key achievements that Vietnam enjoyed under Park's leadership? Sure thing. So since Park took the helm in October 2017, Vietnam went on to win the ASEAN Football Federation Championship in 2018, grabbed the gold medal at the Southeast Asian Games in 2019 and 2021, and reached the final Asian qualifying round for the 2022 FIFA World Cup. Now, Park wrapped up his five-year term with the AFF Mitsubishi Electric Cup, which ended on Monday, sadly with Vietnam losing to Thailand in the finals. Yeah, sadly, he wasn't able to cap off his tenure with another title this week. But still, uh, that would have just been the cherry on top. It doesn't diminish from what he has achieved Mm. over the years. So what lies in store for Park now? What comes next? Well, VTC, or the Vietnam Multimedia Corporation, speculated that Park will likely continue his ties with Vietnam. The firm said, although Park has yet to disclose what he will do in the future, he did confirm that he plans to continue to work on projects related to football. The firm said it believes that after taking a break in South Korea, Park will go back to the Southeast Asian country with a new project. Yes, he has reiterated that he will not be taking a job here in Korea, uh, but still I'm sure his uh, next moves will be watched closely by Korean and now Vietnamese football fans as well. Okay, we'll leave it there for Korea training today. Walter, thank you for those stories and we'll see you next time. See you soon. Continue on now to Korea Book Club, our weekly dive into the world of Korean literature through works available in translation and beyond. And for that, we welcome, of course, our literary critic, Barry Welsh, who has joined us now in the studio. Barry, hello, and hope you're doing well. Yes, good evening. So what are you introducing us to today? So today we're reviewing a short story called The Age of Doubt by Pak Kyung Mi and translated by Anton Hur and published by Honford Star. Uh, the Age of Doubt, or the Korean title is Bulshin Shide, is the title story in a new collection of Pak's uh, short stories. The English translation was published just last year, late last year, I believe. And each story in the collection is translated by a different translator. So the title story is translated by Anton Hur, but there's other translators which regular listeners uh, will recognise as well. So there's also stories translated by people like Sophie Bowman and Emily Ye Won. Uh, And the Korean collection uh, was published in 2021, but the stories in this collection, they actually date from between 1955 and around 1968. And Pak is a, 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 a seminal figure in Korean literature. She was born in 1926, uh, passed away in 2008, and she's most famous for a sprawling, uh, you know, a vast multi-volume saga called Soil, or Toji, uh, which was published over uh, you know, 25 years, a quarter of a, a century. Uh, from 1969 to 1994 and it covered historical changes in Korea in the first uh, first half of the 20th century uh, and so this collection the Age of Doubt collection uh, I think this is an attempt to highlight the importance of Pak's shorter works that she produced before she embarked on, on this uh, you know career defining epic uh, and this story and, and much of the other stories in the collection they're set in the aftermath of the Korean war and uh, the age of doubt it depicts uh, a widow a war widow who's struggling to survive in the extremely harsh post-war conditions 
Yes, we've reviewed uh, many stories and novels about this period in Korean history. It was uh, a time of great upheaval, of course, as the country attempted to rebuild after the uh, devastation of the Korean War. So how does uh, Park Kyung-lee then depict this turbulent time in Korean history? Right, so this is uh, a story about the horror of post-war life in a devastated Seoul. Uh, you know, the capital city was uh, devastated during the Korean War. Uh, and it's about how does a woman survive in this, you know, d- destroyed landscape of a country and city trying to recover from this terrible uh, tragedy of the war and Pak was drawing on her own life experiences in the story her husband and son both died shortly after the outbreak of war uh, and so we can see how she draws on this in the opening sentence of the story uh, in which the narrator says the night before the second battle of Seoul a bomb killed Jin Young's husband uh, and that you know terse matter of fact tone continues throughout the story uh, we quickly learn that Jin Young's house was uh, also destroyed in the fighting and that her nine year old son died because of an incompetent doctor who didn't treat him correctly uh, after an accident in the street uh, so very much uh, drawing on experiences that, that Pak herself had uh, we catch up with Jin Young a month after she's suffered this latest tragedy of her, her child dying, she's sick with consumption, she's drinking to help her sleep and she's haunted by the death of her her only child. She says, in her dreams, uh, she hurries through a maze of alleyways looking for her child until she sees him wrapped in so many bandages she can't make out his eyes or nose or mouth. So how is Jin Young to deal with this deep and profound sadness? Where can she turn for consolation? And over the course of the story, she will turn to religion, to community, to medical professionals and her family and find all to be corrupt and incompetent. Wow, so it's a very bleak view then. Yes. Uh, let's tackle some of those elements. Uh, tell us first about the religious aspect. What problems does Jin Young experience when she tries to seek comfort from religion? Right, so this is the the main uh, sort of avenue of the story, I guess. Uh, so in the first instance, she turns to Christianity uh, and attends the nearby Catholic church. She, uh, she goes there with a very uh, devout family member, I guess a kind of auntie, uh, and she explains, I'm not going because of my salvation. I just want to think there's a heaven and that my Munsu is happy there, Munsu being her uh, son. Uh, however, her experience at the church is very disappointing. She can't help but view this uh, you know, religious service and experience through cynical and jaded eyes. She can't help but feel like, she says, a traveller in a strange land and all the while that she's in the church she has this interior monologue going on in her head and this monologue is sort of full of mockery for what she sees and full of uh, self-loathing and no matter how much she wants to lose herself in in the religious fervor that the other attendees seem to be experiencing she just can't seem to do it Uh, And she says she yearns to step away from this objective self-image and struggles to immerse herself in an ideal, but her forced intentions refuse to set in her heart. And so this experience is a failure for her. It doesn't work. Mm. uh, And she turns away from the Catholic Church, finding that it doesn't offer any meaning or comfort. Right, I see. I understand that uh, Christianity is not the only religion she turns to in the story. What... uh does the story say about 
Buddhism as well. Yeah, right. So uh, the story is equally critical uh, and just as cynical about the Buddhist practitioners that she meets. So the monks are just as corrupt as the the servants in the Catholic Church. And again, we find this uh, you know critique of organized religion, which is essentially exploiting these uh, desperate and often traumatized people for for financial gain. And so Jin Young goes with her mother to the Buddhist temple on All Souls Day to give a food offering to her for for her dead son the monks however they want to squeeze them in as quickly as possible before a more important and uh, welfare member of the community arrives and they cut the service short for Jin Young's son when this person does arrive and then they complain that Jin Young and her mother they haven't given uh, a sizable enough uh, donation and so again Jin Young is full of cynicism when she realises there's nothing really spiritual there it's all a lie and as she leaves she bursts into tears and Park Pak writes that the loneliness and longing surges up inside her into near madness and so we see the sort of complete failure of these two religions to offer anything genuinely meaningful. There's no comfort or solace. Instead, there's just exploitation. And it's a very uh, damning characterization of religious belief and practice. Yes, indeed. Uh, very cynical. Uh, Pag also writes about corruption in other areas of the protagonist's life. Uh, where else does... Uh, corruption manifest in the uh, post-war society. Right, yes. So the other, the main area where we see this sort of, uh, you know, inhuman exploitation and corruption is among medical practitioners. So I think most of us, we like to think that, uh, you know, as with religious figures, that doctors and nurses are beyond uh, reproach. Uh, They act in their patients' best interests. However, Pack writes that this, the desperation of the, the post-war years has corrupted this as well. Uh, you know, it has even made the doctors and nurses into unscrupulous people who are trying to cut corners and, and uh, make money on the side. And uh, so again, we see the sort of failing of this institution that we'd like to think we could rely on. But Park, Park doesn't stop there either. The story also, you know, criticizes Jin Young's family members. They're equally lost and misguided in their own ways. And it's almost as if she's saying there's, you know, at, at this point or in these circumstances, there is no ethical way uh, to live. And and so what do you do if you're an honest or moral person? How do you live and survive? And so in its portrayal of, of one sh- such woman and her search for some kind of meaning, we just see this very damning criticism, criticism and analysis of uh, post-war Korean society. Right. As we said at the start, it's a very bleak assessment <laughs> of uh, life in post-war Korea. Uh, depicting more the sense of hopelessness, I yes. feel. Uh, Barry, it sounds like quite a tough read, but perhaps compelling, especially because of its historical value as well, I guess, looking back at it now. Right, I, I, it is certainly compelling. Uh, I thought it was, uh, you know, the, tr- the translation is very engaging. Like I said at the beginning, it has this sort of terse matter-of-factness to it, and there's a, it, there's a clarity to her uh, psychological state that's very engaging, and yeah, it just it's very sharp and very cutting, and it has a a, a very I think uh, a useful analysis. Let's see. Right. Well, once again, it's called "The Age of Doubt" by Park Young Lee. That is where we'll leave it for today, Barry. Thank you for that review, and we'll talk to you again soon. Okay. Take care. Did you enjoy this segment? You can discover more segments like this throughout the week on Korea 24. 
On Monday, we bring you news from the world of sports around the peninsula. Then on Tuesday, notable guests from various fields join us and give us insight into their lives and work. Are you a fan of books? Then tune in on Wednesday for Korea Book Club, where our book critic helps us unpack works by Korean authors or written on Korea. Go on an adventure with us every Thursday as we take a look at Korea's hidden gems with Explore Korea. And on Friday, listen to what our film critics have to say about the latest movie releases from both home and abroad. We have all that you need, all in one place, on Korea 24. We finish up with Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald, who we thank for providing us with their early editions to make this segment possible. And for that, our staff editor, Richard Larkin, has joined us in the studio to tell us about what he's seen. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you, too. OK, so what's caught your eye first for tomorrow? Well, before we go into the first article, have you been able to see a Korean play, Jango? A Korean play? A yes. play in Korea? Well, it's been a while. Definitely pre-pandemic, I would mm. say. I think the last one I saw was, a, I think, a Korean interpretation of a Shakespeare play, Macbeth. That oh, was wow. quite arresting. Uh, what about you? I haven't been able to see one yet, sadly. I did see the musical Lion King when it came to Korea, which was amazing. Yes. But not a Korean play. Mm. It is on the list of things to do, though. Right. Hwan Dong-hee's article in the entertainment section of the Korea Herald explains that Belgium will have its first ever performance of a Korean language play. The play is called Chronicles of Alibis and will be staged at KVS Brussels at 7.30pm on Wednesday local time. Okay, so a Korean language play in Belgium. Yes. Wow, we've... uh often talks about K-pop and Korean movies and TV shows doing well internationally. So it's nice to be able to talk about Korean theatre heading overseas as well. Exactly. The play is part of the Travelling Korean Arts Project by the Korean Foundation for International Cultural Exchange. According to the article, the foundation works with Korean cultural centres abroad to introduce the country's arts and culture to overseas audiences. The cool thing is, is that if you don't know Korean, it's fine. English subtitles will be provided during the performance. <laughs> Let me tell you a bit about the story. Chronicle of, of Alibis is an autobiographical narrative of playwright-director Kim Jae-yup's father and older brother. It takes a look at the ups and downs of Korea's modern history. Yes, well, thankfully there is English subtitles <laughs> uh, for the international audience to enjoy. I believe uh, this is not a new play, right? That's right. It was produced by the National Theatre Company of Korea in 2013. From what I saw in the article, the play has been well received. It won several awards, including the Best Korean Play of the Year in 2013. So for listeners who happen to be in Brussels, reservation <laughs> is required through the official site of the Korean Culture Centre in Belgium. But from the sounds of things, it could be staged in other countries in the, th- in the future. Yes, uh, why not? So, so uh, I guess a Korean play could be coming to a town year soon as well. OK, let's uh, move on to our second story. What's next for us? Next, we have a story about the metaverse. I have to admit, I feel like I am getting old because I still don't understand what it is exactly. <laughs> but the Seoul government seems to be ahead of the trend. It has launched the world's first public services platform in the metaverse. That's what Go Dong-hwan's article in the business section of the Korea Times is about. Yes, uh, I'm pretty much on the same boat as you. I'm not <laughs> quite sure. But uh, anyway, what public services can be found in the metaverse then? There are administrative, tax and education services for now. There are plans to add more services in the future, including services for foreigners living in Korea. 
The cyber platform was launched to add to the city's contactless lifestyle trend. It was also made for people with advanced ICT skills and younger generations from the digital age. Okay, so how then can people uh, visit this platform? So it can be found through the app Metaverse Soul, which is available on app stores. The city government has taken steps to stop hackers and prevent illegal activities, so you don't have to worry. <laughs> mm. All first-time users will have to confirm their personal identities and sign up for an account to enter. There is also a code of ethics for Metaverse to prevent any offences. For example, avatars cannot touch each other, swearing is automatically filtered out, and users are able to report any irregularities found on the platform. As I mentioned earlier, there will be more public services added in the future, and you can find out what they are in the article. Yes, I'd be interested to see how widely this is used and people's experiences of the service uh, they provide as well, uh, especially for, as you said, uh, you and me, we don't perhaps quite get it, uh, <laughs> but perhaps uh, with feedback, uh, we uh, will find out more as well. And as it's the world's first public uh, services uh, platform, I'm sure there might be a bit of hiccups at the start, but it'd be interesting to see how it goes. Indeed. OK, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you for bringing us those stories, Richard, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you. And that's where we'll call it a day for today. Thank you for staying with us. Uh, we'll be back and with another edition of the show tomorrow. So do join us again then to continue to get your daily dose of Korean news analysis. Till then, we hope you have a great day. I've been your host, Kwon jang And thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. KBS World Radio.